and welcome to The Hive, a new conservation podcast. My name's Molly. And I'm Brian. We hope you'll enjoy hearing our conversations as much as we enjoyed having them. Welcome everybody to episode five of The Hive. That rhymes. It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> so today we're going to be uh, looking all about engagement, which is what I actually do as a role and what I'm guessing you've got years of experience with, Brian. Not that many. Um, but no, I guess really I'm I'm now, um, big news since the last episode is I, I have now changed um, kind of careers, but still consider myself in conservation sector i'm now teaching um hopefully future conservationists at the local land-based college that molly and i both attended so i guess that is a form of engagement as well really if i did it it's it's the environmental education which we'll hear about in a bit anyway so that's a a good segue into into the actual episode with with the actual guests exactly um so yeah. just talking about the guests as well. So I think all three of the the people that we're speaking to do today have all in, um, influenced how we work in one way or another as well. It's fair to yeah. say, isn't it? So our guests today include Julia Minier, who works for Conservation Optimism. We've got uh, Sammy Brisden, who actually works with me uh, as my Leave Any Footprints assistant, but she's uh, she's also got a nice background in some other avenues of environmental engagement as well and lastly it's our second author on the show so you may remember a few episodes ago we had jesse panazolo the author of how to conserve conservationists well today we have the author of 365 days wild um, who also conceived of the 30 days wild as part of her role with the wildlife trust as communications manager lucy mcrobert so we hope this episode is of interest to anybody working in conservation. Um, engagement is a tool that's of importance to all of us now, whether you're working as a ranger on the front line, whether your role is actual engagement or whether you're learning to be a, a ranger or a communicator. Knowing how to best do it is really helpful to um, all of our limited resources. Obviously, if you work alongside engagement people, you'd rather they weren't spending tens of thousands of pounds on the wrong engagement. And as a frontline worker, you've probably got some good ideas yourself of what species should be protected and how they could be protected and how that messaging should come across so hopefully you'll pick up a few ideas as we go along on this episode of how that could be done yeah and I think we as you said we've definitely picked up tips as we've been working along you know after did the different interviews we've had with all of the guests I think we've we've taken away something from all of them um but for me it's quite a pivotal episode this one with with who we've chatted with and what we've learned from my biggest thing was was learning about Canva from Julia but that's a that's a side note but um just knowing that there's a lot more research going into how to best engage with people I I had a small two-month research position with Bournemouth Uni looking into that exact thing how to engage 18 to 30 year olds with nature um and I think it is becoming an increasingly important part of conservation knowing how to get our messages across in the right ways Absolutely. So we're moving on from your Canva addiction and we are going to introduce um, the first guest. So Julia Minier from Conservation Optimism. So Julia, thank you for joining us from Conservation Optimism. Would you like to tell us about yourself? Sure. So I I trained as a scientist first. And so I did a degree in zoology when I was younger. And uh, while I was doing my master's degree, I did a dissertation on sea turtle in Brazil and, you know, looking at the data and analyzing everything. 
and I kind of reached the point where I felt that even though I liked science, I felt I wanted to talk about other people's research rather than doing research myself. And so what I did from there is I decided to then transition into a journalism degree. Uh, and then uh, that was kind of like my entry door into the world of science communication. Um, so I did, I did a bit of uh, initially science communication at Chester Zoo for almost two years. And uh, that was a great way to work on blogs, press releases, doing events, lots of different things. And I then moved into um, my role at Conservation Optimism, which is where I am at the moment doing initially organizing the summit for which was uh, in 2019 so that was quite quite a lot of my time initially was devoted to organizing that summit uh, and then once that was done I started doing lots of other projects like we started a podcast we have a film festival there's always lots of different aspects of conservation optimism to work on. Do you find it's really been able to help you bring something different to conservation by bringing journalism into your own set of skills as well? Yes, I feel so. Uh, I think so. And it, it's really interesting because it plays in both sides as well. So in a way, when I started my first job in science communication, it was easier for me to to reach out to both the scientists team and the PR and marketing team because I had the skill sets from both sides. And, you know, I couldn't understand the science. So the scientists would take me seriously. But then I also knew how to turn a story into what I would want to write as a journalist. So then that was quite a useful skill in terms of writing press releases, for example, because what you want to do is turn that story into something that would appeal to other journalists. And as I had trained as one, I was like, okay, I see exactly how I can turn this story so that it's appealing. So I think it really, it really played out really well in terms of working with both the comms side and the science side. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about solutions-based journalism? Sure. And actually, I mean, it's solutions-based journalism, but also just solutions-based communication uh, overall, because for us in Conservation Optimism, we work with lots of people who might be science communicators, who write blogs, who write press releases. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be specifically adapted to journalism. You can adapt it to lots of different um, situations. But for me, I'm, I'm personally involved in solutions journalism uh, quite heavily as well through uh, a passion project that I started four years ago. So I launched a website called Incline and it's all about looking at positive news and trying to bring more solutions-based stories in, in the media. So actually that's that's when I really stumbled upon the concept of solutions journalism. And what I've learned throughout the years, so there's there's even a, an organization called Solutions Journalism Network in the US, and they kind of came up with um, the, the guiding principles behind what is a good solutions journalism story. And one thing that is quite interesting is that it's people often think that then it's just fluffy journalism or like you, you're just talking about a cat being saved in trees and that's not <laughs> at all what it is. Um, and so I think it's important to highlight that it's talking about the solutions, but really bringing the data, you know, showing, okay, here is why this solution is working in, in this specific uh, context. But you're also talking about the limitations and that's a very important thing. So you're always trying to to balance the, the narrative and and then you, you also have to always try, ideally, to make it scalable to other places. So, you know, bringing the story in a way that other people who are in, in a different country might still learn something from it and might be able to replicate or use something that was um, that was talked about in, in that specific story. So for me, that's something that I find really interesting. Um, but the, the limitations is, is something that at Conservation Optimism, I know 
people often ask us as well, like, oh, so then are, are you just pretending that everything is fine and that people don't need to do anything? And it's not at all what we're saying. You know, the, it's really important to give the context and highlight the challenges. But then we think that it empowers people more if you give them solutions rather than just leaving them at that stage of just the description of the problem and then ending your story there. Um, but again, we, we do that as well by making sure that we also highlight um, what's not working and trying to learn from from those failures as well because it's it's very much you need to have both parts of the story I think to get to get people to be able to replicate or use or learn from what other people have been doing in the conservation sector. As somebody who's who's site based, um, working on the site, and obviously it's quite you get an emotional link to to what you're working on. Um, and I think as a conservationist as well, and, and you know, people who work in the sector, obviously we sometimes when we put things in posters and maybe on posts on social media or on blogs, we we perhaps well, I can't say we, but maybe I'm I'm guilty perhaps of not considering um the other, you know, my reader's perspective. So I'd be mm. writing it from my point of view. And I think sometimes that that can, you know, bring engagement down and not quite get the message I want across. But how do we talk to non-conservationists uh, non better to get messages across? And is the language that we use important? Yeah, I think the language is definitely important. And actually, that's something that was uh, that really came through when we worked on the positive communication toolkit. And something that you just said actually remind me of, of one of the traps that we have in there, uh, which is about sometimes the mental image that people have in their head of a word you're using is completely different to the one that you have in your own head so for example we might talk about fishermen thinking about you know big industrial fishermen thinking about bycatch because we're in the conservation sector that's the image that we might have but then when we when we're talking to an an, an audience that is not necessarily working in conservation you know, the meaning of fishermen could be completely different. They might be of thinking of very small scale fishery. They might know someone in their family who is a fisherman. And so I think it's, as you said, it's just really important to be careful with the language we're using and just really questioning sometimes the, the phrasing or the specific words that we're using to just make sure that our audience might feel connected and understand it in the way we actually want to convey it. Because again, if you're talking about bycatch, that's, that's, it doesn't feel fully jargony, but yet it is a bit of a of a jargony word. And actually, uh, the advice that we had from uh, Ralph Underhill worked on the toolkit with us to develop it was that you might want to replace this word bycatch by dead dolphins or dead seals just to give people a clear mental picture of what you're actually referring to. Because bycatch is one of these kind of like sterile word, like you know, it, it, we know the meaning of it, but it doesn't necessarily bring any images to mind if you don't work yourself in that sector so I think there's definitely a lot that we can do to just make sure that we build that bridge with uh with an audience that doesn't necessarily have that full-on conservation knowledge so I mean communications um it definitely seems to be um maturing as a you know as a as a part of the conservation effort can you outline why why people should spend time engaging with the public about conservation and if you've you know if you've got any positive um impacts that you've, you've seen yourself that this has i think it's important to to communicate about 
non-conservationists in a way like if you talk about the traditional sense of people who have a degree in conservation um because we i think it's really important to have everyone on board in terms of protecting nature because we are facing so many challenges we kind of need all the help we can get really and and i think by making sure that people get a bit more of that solutions-based messages as well to counteract maybe with what they find in in the media because I, I know you find so often these headlines that are very very doom and gloom or like you know talking about how it's too late to do anything or talking about extinction in a in a, in a very in a way that make people feel like there's nothing they can do so I think it's important because we can all make a difference even in our small ways and that's something that's why I was saying earlier you know we really believe that everyone can be a conservationist because even someone who works I think Jesse had given this example of you know you might be like a, a mom uh, being at home or like a lawyer but yet you're still trying to uh, do your recycling or thinking what food you'll buy and what would make a better impact for the future and I think all of these small steps can really add up and also I think the more people we talk about the conservation and our messages also the more we can have an impact as um, as an overall like consumer base because that's I feel like that's how we've seen some changes in the industry in recent years as well. When uh, when consumers or people actually buying a product suddenly realize that it has negative impact on the environment and you start reaching that tipping point where you have enough people talking and complaining about it that the brand actually has to do something about it. And so I think just making sure that so all, sorry, just making sure that as many people as possible um, have that awareness then is really important. Here's another example. Um, so if someone's working in conservation and wants to engage with, with people, and let's just say, you know, they're, they're setting up a wildlife reserve, they bought a patch of land, so the Wildlife Trust have bought a new patch of land, um, and they want to start engaging with people. And as is typical um, in, in smaller teams, there's no marketing budget at all. What is the most effective strategy they can start off with and what routes should they consider first? I would say that the first, the very first thing would be to actually know who your audience is, because it's very often sometimes that you start working on a communication plan or, you know, developing content, but then you haven't really tailored it to a specific audience. You're kind of like, oh, I want to reach everyone. I've heard that in the past, you know, people telling me, oh, we just want to reach everyone with this campaign. But then it's like, well, you can't, you can't really reach everyone. Like that's not, that's not necessarily very realistic so I think sometimes the best way to start is maybe to identify like a smaller audience that you particularly want to reach so you know if it's if you're starting your communication about a nature reserve then maybe your audience is actually the the local community so the the people who live nearby the reserve because you want them to actually know that it's now open and that they can come in and see it um, so I would say first being very specific about who your audience is and then be very specific about what you want your audience to do with your message so again taking the example here uh, of a nature reserve you know do you want people to to come and and visit the reserve do you want people to just know that it exists is it like raising awareness do you want them to know about a particular species that is maybe of interest in that specific area um and so i think once you're very clear about that then it's you can start thinking about how you want to communicate your message and so you know then you you might say okay actually if i want to reach um the local 
communities around this nature reserve, the best thing might be to create a flyer and deliver it to everyone's house. Or if you want to reach someone that is a bit like more national level, you might be like, oh, okay, then the best way to do this is probably to do a social media campaign because that's the way we will reach most people. Or you might be like, I actually think that to reach our specific audience and achieve our goal, we might want to do a special event at the nature reserve and then get people on board. So I think that that would be kind of like my key advice is to, to start thinking about these three points very carefully. And I think from there, no matter how big your team is, then you can start thinking about what's the best way to go about it. So massive thank you to Julia for that. I think as we've, we've, we've said previously is that we, we've learned a lot from from our well not our chat because I couldn't make it but from Brian's chat with Julia <laughs> yeah and I think the, the point she made on solutions-based journalism um, and obviously making sure that people can feel some positivity around your messaging and that there is hope um, and not you know jumping to doom and gloom because people can't really feel like they jump on that bandwagon um, and I think the other thing was about knowing your audience being an important part of conceiving of a, of a messaging campaign as well you know we all I think jump into to um, what we want to happen to the end result first and sometimes planning the journey um, on how we get to that is best and I think knowing your audience is a great tip to start with. I think it's worth noting as well um, from a previous episode talking about Wild Hub that Julie is on there and she's got some great resources that are free to access and yeah have been really helpful to me as well. Oh, uh, the conservation optimism toolkit, positive That's communications toolkit. Yeah, yeah, that is the the bible for me for for engagement. So yeah, <laughs> check that one out for sure. Cool. So I guess we'll uh, we'll dive straight back in with our second guest, who's Sammy Brisden, and she'll chat to us a little bit about the importance of environmental education for changing behaviours in the form of engagement. And we're also going to touch upon, uh, I guess, a, a more. Um, a less informal question about the countryside code where we sort of look at its effectiveness. So, yeah, let's go. OK, so hi, Sammy. Would you like to tell us about yourself to start off? Hi. Yeah. So um, I have studied foundation in wildlife education and media and then applied zoology. Um, I mainly look at engagement and working within the community on many different wildlife issues um, and I've done it very fortunately enough to do it all over the world. I've done it over in Nepal, Honduras and most recently Thailand. Um, my heart is with the coast though and so marine is the passion, um, especially litter and plastics um, and most recently joined you guys down in Bournemouth for a new campaign which is exciting. Lucky you on all of those things apart from the last one. <laughs> so um, I guess this is quite a personal one, but um, how important do you think that environmental education is for changing behaviours? And how have you found that this could work best? Massively. Um, I teach mainly young people. I do a lot of work with young people. Um, I would love to do more with older teenagers because I think there is a demographic there that is missing. Um, but I think environmental education or any form of education at a young age really needs to shift. And I, I think it might turn that way after this whole COVID pandemic, after we get into the future, because I think people realise that kids don't need to be 
doing a nine to five schooling system at such a young age because there are many ways to learn and I think people need to harness that and allow people to learn in different ways. We see like environmental education and um, like forest schools. We see a lot of statistics and research on how that allows them to be more environmentally friendly, which makes sense because you see older adults doing it. So you mimic that behavior. You're brought up with it from a very young age. So I think personally, that's the first thing that's key to start teaching people that they need to be doing that. Unfortunately, it's it's quite a a wealthy thing. It's normally a private nursery. It's normally something that can exist if you've got large open spaces. It's not really a thing if it's in the middle of the city. It's also something if you've got a nice small education classroom setting, if you've got a, a little amount of children, great, you can do loads. But if you've got a load of crying kids, you're not going to do it. <laughs> um, I also think we've got to look at nature deficit disorder. I think that's definitely on the rise. I think it's scary how much we rely on technology and how much technology can influence us. And we've seen the benefits of open spaces, but we're not really connecting the dots and pushing outdoor spaces and pushing using that to help people change their behaviour. It's a lot easier for someone to want to protect something if they enjoy it and if they use it and it has value to them. You're not you're not going to care if, you know, the car parking space down the street gets moved or gets changed to double yellows if you already have a garage or a driveway. You've got to sort of have that analogy to it. Nice. I like analogies. <laughs> so, um, Sammy, you're just talking about engaging with people and getting messaging out and people not knowing um, the impacts of what they're doing and really, I guess, to some degree, not knowing how to behave when they're outside. Um, there's been some news stories lately about the fact that the government on average has spent, have spent an average of £2,000 every 18 months on advertising the countryside code. Do you think that is in any way significant? No. Do you know the countryside code off by heart? Because the farmers, they do. They do yeah. think it's significant. They, um, they probably would because it's, it's the it. most beneficial for them. Like, I don't know anything about different tax laws because I don't do my, I'm not a tax attorney. I don't know the correct terminology for it. But you know what I mean? Like, you're not going to. Why? Like, that's, it's almost pointless advertising. Like, like, why? Yeah, it, that, that kind of frustrates me. Because it's like, if you spent that money taking one of the messages just one of them and adapting it to plain English for somebody to understand and advertising that in very different ways then monitoring to see if there was a result then continuing on that step or changing it if it made sense but what's the point of just like advertising the same thing over and over again if it's not doing anything so in terms of the last major rebrand of it was during well it was pre-2010 um when there was a lot of money spent on turning the countryside code into a range of tv adverts featuring 
characters made by Wallace and Gromit into a more like humorous, like primetime way of behaving when you're outdoors, which was a different way of just putting what was before then quite a dry range of information. Is there any stats on whether or not it worked? Because engagement is only, it's only as good as the feedback. If you've not got anything to compare it to, then you can't you can't see if it worked or not. You can have all these theories and methods that you're trying to achieve, but if you've not actually seen whether it worked or not, there's no point. You're just throwing money away. Also, where are they targeting it? Because I've yeah. never I've never seen anything advertising it. Um, and clearly if you live in the countryside they seem to all know what it's about so why do they seem to be advertising it in the countryside where people know the code anyway it's the people who travel to those sites that end up doing the damage just to play just to play devil's advocate molly how old were you in 2004 jeez um 11 no nine so when you say you haven't seen anywhere isn't that entirely meeting the point that it hasn't been funded properly since 2004 yeah. Yeah. So that was when they did the Wallace and Gromit thing? That's when they did the Wallace and Gromit thing, yeah. They spent £721,000 in a single Jesus. year on creating <laughs> characters. And that was it until... Well, the yeah. only thing I remember about Wallace and Gromit is they did, like, find Wallace and Gromit round Bristol. Oh. That was nothing. That was nothing to do with, like... <laughs> the countryside, actually. You just went and, you, and it was a trail. And that was fun. But what if they took, like, the countryside code now and then spent it, that money on paying, I don't know, Instagram influencers or whatever is today's currency in terms of trends with people? Just like Wallace and Gromit weirdly was back then, you know, today it would be something else. But it's about not producing just another leaflet that says shut the gates once you've used them. And it's also like you've got to make it relevant to them. Why Why do they care whether or not you're going to shut a gate? If it, it's not my land, it's not my field. Humans are innately selfish. And it, it's a horrible thing, but it's true. Like, we're innately selfish. And it's something that has come from long, like, systemic evolution. So you've got to make something selfish. You've got to give them a reason to want to do that. You know, the whole idea of people using i can't remember the correct words but you know the the recycling machines where you get money from it that scheme taps into somebody's selfishness because they're gaining something out of it and it's worked so you're saying shut the gate or else the killer sheep will come after you yeah exactly absolutely i'd I'd shut the gate (laughs) i think we've got it i think we've got it (laughs) problem solved so apparently Natural England developed countryside code messages with social media publisher Lad Bible. No, can't say I've seen Never them. Never saw that. So thank you, Sammy. Certainly um, interesting to hear about how um, environmental education can be used. Obviously, you know, a very important tool for our younger generations. You can see there's a lot of money in, in conservation, or relatively. There's never enough money, is there? Um, <laughs> but a relatively... Um, sizable part of money that goes into education roles which kind of reflects of of the the sector's importance um and the funders feelings of importance towards that generation understanding 
um, how they can help care for our planet as well, whether they become rangers or not. You know, we should all have a hand in in helping our planet, shouldn't we? Yeah, and and the education at the at the youngest age possible obviously increases that chance of being more and more connected with nature and leads you to being a more healthy and also happy individual who wants to care for nature just like us so even if it's not a conservationist no (laughs) so which brings us to our third and final guest for this episode so lucy do you want to tell us about yourself first absolutely so my name is lucy mcrobert and i um, a self-styled wildlife storyteller that isn't an official job title um, it's a job title that I have assigned myself because I am freelance and one of the great things about being freelance is that you get to pick the job that you do and you can call it whatever you want which I just think is marvellous um, I essentially tell stories about wildlife and the environment with the view to engaging more people with nature I do that through a number of channels and I work with all sorts of different organisations to do that. So I work with individual wildlife trusts, editing their publications and their magazines. Um, I work with Mark Constantine, who is the founder and CEO of Lush in the UK. Um, I work with him on a cruelty free optics campaign. I do research on books. Um, I do individual bits of writing and I was the author in 2018 of my first published book called 365 Days Wild, which I did with the Wildlife Trusts. I've actually hopefully got two more books on the cards, fingers crossed, but I can't say anything more about them at the moment because it's not all signed, sealed and delivered yet. But hopefully in the future, that author part of my job is going to be a lot bigger as well. And I'm looking forward to spending more time actually writing about the stuff I want to write about. Amazing, but they say there's a book in all of us, and you've got three. So that's, that's <laughs> good. You're, you're doing mine and Molly's for us. Um, <laughs> Fingers so, crossed. I mean, yeah, I mean so, I've just so, made this. I hope, hope I get to three. That would be great if I did. Hopefully, more. Conservation work is is obviously very important to us as conservationists. Mm-hmm. But how important do you think engagement work is alongside that that conservation effort? I think as we look forward to what we want from conservation in the future engagement is arguably the single most important thing that we have to master because we haven't mastered it yet we're pretty good good at it as an industry um the there are some organizations that are incredible and have absolutely enormous memberships but translating those memberships into people who take an active responsibility for the environment in their everyday lives Um, who are willing to vote for politicians, who will champion the environment and environmental causes, um, who are willing to make sacrifices and changes in their own lifestyles to be better environmentalists. I think all of those, essentially the core lies with engagement. The conservation movement has had for 100 years amazing scientists and ecologists. We know the science, we know the ecology. A lot of it is common sense. If you look at um, things that are deemed as being new, so uh, environmental land management schemes, uh, living landscapes from the wildlife trusts, nature recovery networks, ecosystem services. These are all kind of fancy terms for the same thing that we've been talking about for 100 years. And it's the idea that you invest in nature and nature will give back to you. But we still haven't nailed that narrative with the vast majority of the general public. 
even now in a time of coronavirus, where you are hoping that the world can take a long, hard look at itself and say, we are responsible for what is going on in the world right now. And this has caused devastation to individuals, to families, to societies, to communities and to entire countries. And we still don't seem to be able to make that very basic connection that it is human actions that impact on the environment and there are consequences of that. Engagement to me lies at the heart of everything that we have to now get right. I believe it is where we should be investing huge amounts of money uh, in giving people access to nature. Again, it's not just about planting some trees and hoping that people know how to enjoy them engaging people with those landscapes and helping them rebuild their connections to nature that is going to require engagement at every level whether it's face to face online in print on radio on television it is no longer just enough to sit and watch a david attenborough documentary about extinction and say yeah i care about extinction it has got to translate into action and that i think is what is missing so you don't think the news that Britain's planning to build its first coal mine in the first 30 years is a is a sign of lessons learned for us? I I think it kind of beggars belief, actually. Um, I think personally, there's always this underlying hope in me that someone's going to intervene and say, no, no, this is not a good idea. Why, like when you're watching a child in the playground and wondering where the parent is and hoping that at some point soon they're going to turn up and go stop it. Yeah, like, <laughs> there's got to be a responsible adult somewhere who's going to some point put their hand on the government's shoulder and go, it's really not a good idea. First of all, it's a PR disaster. Second of all, it's a climate change disaster. You don't want to be the government that does this. But this obsession with rebuilding the economy keeps drawing us back to practices from the 1960s and the 1970s, to a certain extent the 1980s, but not really. And we keep going backwards to this time that was very destructive because we see it as a time of prosperity. It's like, no, there are new ways to be prosperous. There are new jobs. There are new exciting ways we can train people. There are new ways that we can employ people. There are new ways that we can connect people with nature through their jobs, um, through their lifestyles. And that can all generate income and we also need to move away from this idea that GDP is the most important measure in the world. It's not. Again, if you look at what's going on in the world, surely we must learn from something like a pandemic that mental health, physical health is so much more important than how much money people have got in their savings. Because if people are mentally and physically healthier and happier, they will become more prosperous. They will become more creative. They will become more ambitious. We're just completely looking at this whole thing the wrong way round. We spoke um, a couple of weeks ago to um, Kendra, who lives in Canada, and she um, taught a course at a college um, called Visual Communication in Conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was linked to a local a, a museum, so the Royal Ontario Museum. Um, and so the students would learn at the college and then work with the museum on projects and their own sort of cura- curatorial stock. So they would they would have sort of real life projects to engage on. And then they would send. So these were conservation students that were doing a post grad course mm-hmm. in visual communications, and they would be sent off out into the world to make videos and, and social media and blogs properly. And that sounds like a really to me that sounds like a really innovative step so molly's kind of she's great at her job as engagement she is learning as she goes along um because there doesn't seem to be any 
great formalized courses in this country about conservation engagement mm-hmm. i know there's some about science communication but do you think that's a step that we we perhaps need to make it you know in the uk about making better you know or, or helping engagement staff to get better i think that is an incredibly important point that you've just made if i look at the structure of the conservation movement across the uk so often the communications jobs fall to the perceived least important person in the organization it's oh there's an intern let's give them twitter and that makes my skin crawl and it makes me panic frankly and i i think we completely structure our engagement jobs incorrectly we don't employ people who um, have got years of experience and it's not because they're not there and it's not because the people um, who are doing the jobs aren't, aren't good. They are very good. But ultimately, they're being paid a pittance to do something that is actually incredibly skilled. And if you get it right, incredibly powerful and probably the most powerful tool that the conservation movement could have at its fingertips right now. The natural world is full of amazing, incredible stories. And there is a thirst for this amongst the general public. We've seen this over and over again, but we don't necessarily employ the right people to do the right jobs. Like you say, there's just this kind of throwaway culture with it where I remember when I first started out in comms, you're meant to have, say, five or six targets within your personal development report when you're doing a job. And you ended up with 15, 20 different things. There is no way one person paid the amount that these people are paid can actually do that to the standard that is needed. I don't quite know how we address that because I think it's incredibly difficult. But I think part of it lies in the fact that we insist on things like degrees Um, preferably in science subjects. Now, I'm not a scientist. I'm a historian. So the fact that I even got a job in conservation is frankly miraculous by most people's standards because I'm not an ecologist. And most jobs ask for an ecology degree or equivalent. I was rubbish at science. Terrible. I haven't got anything better than a GCSE in it because I was a really bad scientist. But I think when we look beyond that to things like um, degrees and master's, One of my very good friends who now works for the RSPB, and she's incredible. She's a really good land manager. Her dissertation at master's level was on measuring sticklebacks in Scottish locks. And I go, what is that teaching anyone about actual practical conservation that is going to save the world? And these weren't even live sticklebacks. It was a horrendously dull project. And she's made it work. She's turned it into a great career. And I'm endlessly impressed with how she did, because the the subjects sometimes that these degrees cover and the subjects that you're told to cover at A-level, they don't inspire you. They don't get you excited. And then we sit there and we wonder why science communication is seen. And it's like, well, because we're talking about sticklebacks at master's level and we're talking about how long they are in two different locks in Scotland. That's really boring. We don't. I think we don't think we're very good at training our scientists to tell stories. And I don't think we're very good at giving our storytellers the right training, the right guidance and the right support to do their jobs to their full capability. So what you just talked about there with visual communications and that being an actual thing that's recognised, I think that's really exciting. 
And also the fact that I think when you are a reserve manager, you can be too close to the work. Um, mm-hmm. So I've, you know, I've had dog attacking, um, dogs attacking sheep on the reserve before. And I've, you know, dealt with the sheep, dealt with the owner and then jumped on Facebook on the on the, the reserve Facebook page to have a, it's not a rant, but it, it's it's certainly bad tempered and it doesn't go down very well. I mean, do you think that's an important point that kind of the the, the people in those roles do step back a bit and think about things in a more um professional manner uh yes i absolutely do it's very tricky and i say this with all respect to all conservation staff who work in land management i think they do an outstanding job not a single person i know who works in land management does their hours they give so much for free they give so much of their time and expertise and they are a really inspiring bunch However, there is still a snobbery that exists in conservation that puts the scientists and the conservationists above the comms and marketing staff that ultimately says you communicate what we tell you to. And we say, oh, but we have expertise. Can we just no, no, we don't want your expertise because our expertise matters more than yours. And I think there is a real snobbery exists and I can understand why because these things are quite new they're changing all the time but I remember having many conversations in previous jobs where you're trying to get across the importance of getting that story right or you're trying to convince someone that this isn't a story that needs telling there's a great phrase in marketing called wearing your underpants on the outside and it's what happens when you get high level senior management staff who don't really understand the inner workings of what you do in communications, um, telling you to tweet things, put things on Facebook, share things on Instagram or include things in a membership magazine that are really not suitable for the audience. And it's because they fundamentally believe that what they believe is more important than what the audience believes. And we have to step away from that. We have to meet our audience where they are if we want to take them on a journey that changes hearts and minds. And I don't think that has filtered through in a lot of organisations yet. In in some organisations, they're doing really well at that. High five to RSPB. I think they have a really clear understanding of the importance of engagement campaigns and of marketing and of getting those stories right. But in a lot of other organisations, and I think the smaller the organisation or the more parochial the organisation, the worse it gets because they have such limited resources and they have to decide where to put them. And so they are always going to pump it into the practical side. And therefore, you end up with a hierarchy where a head of marketing is not treated as equal to a head of conservation because their expertise is perceived as being less. And actually, it's the head of marketing that could well make or break your organisation. It's the head of marketing that will pay your jobs. And that is something we really need to remember. What's exciting is we're seeing loads of new CEOs coming through now, especially in organisations like the Wildlife Trusts. And these CEOs are coming from really diverse backgrounds, engagement backgrounds, uh, communications backgrounds, education backgrounds, or even roles in places like the NHS. And to me, that's really exciting because they get this and they are changing the cultures within those organisations. But it is going to take time. I mean, I guess you're even lucky if you have a head of marketing as well as a conservation organisation. So that's the first step, really, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, you're completely right. There are a lot that still don't have those kind of roles. 
or you end up with these multi-faceted roles which are fundraising communications marketing and the list goes on and actually then in the big organizations you see social media departments where there are four or five people paid just to do social media and that may seem like a total waste of money but if that if that department is paying its way and not just paying its way but generating income for all of the other work that needs to go on then it's worth the investment so how can telling a story strengthen your point and provoke an emotional response from people um, and how can conservationists do this particularly i always argue that stories are everything stories are the lens with which we see the world it's how we understand history it's how we understand ourselves it's how we understand the cultures that we live in it's how we understand society you end up with a conflicted society when you get conflicting stories um, and a classic example of that not from the environmental sector but a, a two narratives that are going on in the world right now that completely conflict each other um, are first of all we are getting all of these stats and terrifying stories about the impact of coronavirus in terms of people's health. So the number of people dying, uh, the number of families that have been impacted, the impact on the NHS. And that's always the first item in the news. The second item in the news, especially local news, then focuses on businesses that have been damaged because no one is going and supporting those businesses. And to me, they are two completely conflicting narratives. Because at the end of it, what am I supposed to think feel or do and that's a very classic storytelling framework you see you think you feel you do that is what encourages you to take action so I see the reports on the news I think about it but then I feel two conflicting things because part of me says well I, I shouldn't go out and I shouldn't go to the local cafe because I might get ill or I might be asymptomatic and I might spread something and then on the other hand I want to support that local business because that local business needs my support in order to survive and feed their family. So we're in a world where we are constantly fed with conflicting narratives. In terms of the environmental sector, we are littered with conflicting narratives. And it is very confusing for people unless you have quite a strong ecological grasp of the UK. So, for example, um, the invasive species narrative is one that scientists are very big on, where some species are labelled as invasive. However, on the other hand, some of those species that are labelled as invasive are the very species that do the best job of engaging people, particularly in cities, with nature. Think grey squirrels, think ring-neck parakeets, uh, little owls. All of these are species that are introduced. And when you say to people that they're invasive and they're bad, that literally doesn't make sense to them. It can't make sense to them because that's nature to them. And then you're trying to change their minds and change the way they view these animals with facts. And facts never change hearts and minds. It is all about emotion. One of the things that defines us as a species is that we have the capacity to make decisions not based on the facts around us, but based on how we feel. And there's very few species on the planet that can do it. Uh, whales and dolphins can do it. Um, elephants can do it. Dogs can do it to a certain extent. Monkeys can do it. Monkeys and chimps. 
And it's all to do with how we process emotion and how we respond to stimulus. And basically, humans have a choice. We do not just respond based on our instincts. We respond based on how we feel. If you do not trigger emotion in your stories, whether that's love, loss, hope, threat, urgency, joy, inspiration, if you do not trigger those, you will never change the behaviour. You have to have these emotions in your stories for people to remember them and then not only to remember them, but then to feel motivated to act on them. Very few people act on facts. And again, you only have to look at coronavirus to see that we have become numb to the statistics because no human can deal with it. It is too big and we're not supposed to be able to deal with it. None of us would ever leave the duvet if we could deal with it. We're not wired that way. We are wired to understand emotion. So as conservationists, we have to really find the stories that tug at people's heartstrings and that people can relate to. And then we will begin to see behaviour change. When you spoke to the students at the end and they were looking at a behaviour change project, you said out of all the stories, don't touch tragedy. And when mm-hmm. I was looking through the examples, there are there are quite a few organisations that that do use tragedy just as a this is bad, and then it just stops. And you, when you when you see it in that context, you just think that's such a waste of time because all you're doing is making people feel despondent and bad and giving them nothing to act on. Mm-hmm. It, you, you're completely right. The people need people need hope at the end of the day because if there's no hope, what's the point? And people hide behind it as well. Classic example is climate change. We need to feel that what we're doing is making a difference. Um, People hide behind this narrative of, oh, well, China's not doing anything. So what's the point in us not doing anything? And that it's hiding behind an issue. And that's what happens when you don't give people hope. You have to show the impact of their actions. You have to and you can do that in a bad way. You can tell people the action, the negative impacts of their actions, and that will get you so far. But if you focus on the positive impact of their choices and you make people feel good, we're taught from being teeny tiny little human beings that positive reinforcement is good. I do it all the time with my two year old daughter. She she knows that she wants to she wants my love. She wants my feedback. She wants my approval. And the vast majority of parents bring their children up like that. So right from the word go, we we seek approval, even if we don't realise it. So if you focus on the, the things that people are doing right and you encourage that, then you will actually get far further. I actually think so. Uh, veganism is a huge one uh, with veganism being one of the key ways that you can lower your own carbon footprint. And I think there's some very powerful narratives. For many years, the vegan movement focused on telling people off and lecturing people about why eating meat was wrong. I think what's fundamentally changed the vegan movement is the recipes coming out of it because people now not only feel like they're doing something good for the planet, but they enjoy doing it. We've got vegan influencers. We've got vegan cookbooks. We've got vegan restaurants. And it's actually genuinely nice rather than being some kind of weird chewy tofu thing that no one actually wanted to eat and it it, it's fundamentally changed the narrative and everyone will say oh well it's because people understand more 
about their impacts. And I'd say it's a little bit that, but I would actually say it's because it's now enjoyable. Um, confession, I'm not vegan. I eat local is my general rule of thumb. I, I, I try and eat as local as I can. Um, I have cut down my meat intake, certainly. Um, and I think that was quite a big step for me because I was a big meat eater and I definitely cut down my meat intake. And I actually really like the idea of plant-based diets. I think they're healthy and they make me feel really good. But what has been the change? It has been that it's actually fun. It's enjoyable. It's not just about being shouted at. You're not doing it because you've been told off enough times on social media. You're doing it because it's actually tasty. And that makes all the difference. In terms of the the seven different types of story, do you, because when I, when I was looking through to, to try and find conservation examples, it did seem to me like there wasn't the full gamut of those storylines being used across conservation so much. There seemed to be a lot of examples of maybe one or two of those types. But when you look at like the voyage and return and the quest um, and the rebirth, there wasn't a huge range. It all seemed to focus around one or two. Do you think there's more diversity in, in the stories that can be told in conservation? Yes, I think there is actually. Um, so David and Goliath is the big go-to one for most conservation organisations. They will automatically default to David and Goliath. They like to portray the poor little animal or the poor little conservation organisation up against the big nasty um, energy company type thing. And it's a powerful narrative and it works. I do think there are some really great um, options for voyage and return. Um, I think there are some really, really good ideas for rebirth as well. But a lot of this is about telling people stories. I think that's what we have to remember is this isn't necessarily about telling the story about the wildlife. It's about telling the story of the people who are doing the work. And people actually find that really exciting. A big part of this, I think, is in finding the inspiring people within your organisation and in telling the stories that they're doing. You do get quite a lot of rebirth stories when it comes to the environment. So people who made their money in one way and suddenly realised the error of their ways and changed uh, their behaviours or changed their lifestyles. Again, you get this with influencers quite a lot. And I think this is a big opportunity for conservationists and environmentalists to tell some stories. Uh, classic example uh, would be Deliciously Ella from the food industry where she lived her life a certain way, changed her life to being vegan, gluten-free, and felt happier and healthier as a consequence. If we can get those kind of rebirth stories going in conservation um, with influencers and celebrities, and I hate the terms influencer and celebrity. I hate that that's what society is. But if it works, if it sells, at this point, I'm not going to start splitting hairs over who I think is the right person to deliver that message. And I think that is a massive problem in conservation. I think we get so hung up with our own egos and saying who uh, that's not the right person. It should be me delivering that message or me delivering that research. No, don't worry about it. The most important thing is the story's told. It doesn't matter who does the telling um, because we're all in it together now. At the end of the day, we're realising that we are at the 11th hour. We've already been in it together. Anyway, that was a sideline. Um I think it is really important to find those narratives within your organisation and it might be that they already exist. A lot of people will be aware that a few years ago there was a big stranding of sperm whales across the east coast of Britain, Northumberland, Lincolnshire, um, Norfolk and then all the way down into Germany um, and Holland as well. 
I think it was something like 16 animals um, washed up on shores because essentially it was a group of male sperm whales and they went the wrong way when they reached the North Sea. They should have gone down our west coast and they went down the east coast, which was too shallow. They couldn't feed sperm whales or deep divers. They need squid, which are um, deep sea fish, to eat. They were desperately dehydrated and the water was too shallow and they ended up stranding. It was an incredibly tragic event. Lots of people went to see the whales. They were all over television. There were people doing radio interviews. It was an incredibly powerful moment, actually, to see these animals in distress and to try and understand what was happening. Was this about climate change? Was this about plastic pollution? We don't know, essentially. There, There were autopsies done and there were various theories put forward. But likelihood is, is they genuinely just went the wrong way. Another way of telling that story that I think is actually just as powerful is on the night when the first sperm whale stranded in Norfolk, the Coast Guard and the local marine uh, marine mammal medics went out (coughs) in a boat to try and rescue the whale. They tried to refloat the whale. It was on rocks. It was too big. They couldn't do it. This was... I think January, maybe early February, it was dark by five o'clock. It was freezing cold. And when they realised that they couldn't save it, rather than going home and going back to their families and their takeaways and their Friday night beers, they made the decision to stay. And they stayed with the animal until it died. And to me... That is the best of human nature. And that is the story that people will remember if you tell it. People won't remember how many sperm whales died. People won't remember why. People won't remember the stats. But they will remember that someone like them chose with a big act of compassion and a certain element of self-sacrifice to do something dangerous to help another living creature and to me it is those stories we have to find i think it shows you how um powerful it can be as well doesn't it (laughs) just thinking you can hearing the two side by side especially you can you can see why um you know people would would connect much more with with the second version than the first um because i guess we are inherently quite a sort of single-minded species and we do think of ourselves before anything else so why not put ourselves in there and then Mm -hmm. they also like you said they might not remember the numbers but they also they they might because of that story or they might remember why they all died because of that story um yeah I think it's absolutely it's something that you can see perhaps not yourself doing but maybe a neighbor doing or a family member doing it's something that anchors you to a situation and makes it relevant and there are examples like this going on all the time of people going above and beyond and I think it's one of the most fascinating things is when we hear about individuals who have devoted their lives to some inconsequential little species of beetle um, that none of the rest of us would even think to care about but then when you hear their story and why they did it and why they do it it's incredibly powerful um, 
if you talk to older conservationists about the work they did and why they did it, it's that why did they do it? Why did they go above and beyond? Is that that's what stays with people, and it it's what makes you think, well, maybe I could do something too, because I share that person's values. I understand what that person was doing. I understand what that person wants, and they're the stories that I think will change the way that we see the world. You're starting to see this coming through a lot now in wildlife television programming. Um, That's happening a lot, even at the end of things like the the Planet series, at the end of uh, what we've just seen, Perfect Planet, the title of which I absolutely hated, but never mind, we'll put that to one side. Um, At the end of them, they're telling those human stories And the very last episode was all about people. And that was really powerful, actually, to say that this is we this isn't human and nature are separate. This is about us as much as it is about turtles and elephants and beetles and flowers. It's about us. And that's why you have to put people in the story. So a massive thank you to Lucy. I've really enjoyed chatting with her and listening to her speak. You can, you can always tell a writer by the way they speak, I think. They, they always know how to articulate themselves really well. And I think her unique brand of storytelling, or wildlife storytelling, is um, something to definitely go by, if you even if you're just trying to get basic engagement, you know, posters out there like she was mentioning about human well not humanizing but almost humanizing animals that you want people to care about because that links them it connects them and it forces them to really put themselves in in that species shoes also if you want to hear a little bit more from lucy i'm going to plug myself again here but we i've got i recently spoke to on the absolutely (laughs) shameful i recently spoke with her for the nature of lost podcast and she tells her personal story here, but it's still just as poetic as as hearing any of her others. So, um, yeah, check it out. Yeah, I do recommend that episode as well for anybody who hasn't heard the Nature of Lost podcast. Um, all of them are good episodes of very personal stories. Um, and Lucy's is the, is the latest one in that. So I do recommend you check that out on all the usual places you would find your podcast. <laughs> like you would find this one. <laughs> you would find this one. What's your takeaways from today? I think it shows you how creative people are becoming with engagement and also how important it really is uh even if you think oh you know I'm not into social media or oh I'm not that creative or artistic you know I'm I'm not either but all you have to do is take away these tips from other people who are either marketing experts or maybe they're storytellers or possibly they've just figured out a different software to use that really makes your your life a lot easier. I mean, there's always somebody to to learn from and to talk to. Um, And I think that's the whole point of engagement is that we engage with each other within the sector. We engage with other people outside of the sector and we engage with our audience. For me, I think it's about um, a cross conservation sector, about uh, all people that are working in the industry taking the idea of communication seriously, um, especially when it comes to training our staff how to use things. And and uh, Lucy's kind of point about handing Twitter to the apprentice is an important one. Your Twitter, your Facebook and your Instagram handles are incredibly important things to you and your company. And to put those things in the, in the hands of people that might not be messaging your aims and objectives in quite the right way, especially if you're an organisation that relies on memberships, 
or you're hoping your visitors behave in some way um, or stop certain behaviors then obviously you not only might not be having as much impact as you could be but you also might be doing more harm than good as well by alienating communities so um, training your staff um, who are doing communications is a, is a really good one there's lots of lots of sources out there of information not least of all this episode and every other episode of the hive as well <laughs> nice plug thanks <laughs> so please do check us out on spotify yeah. anchor facebook wordpress instagram, instagram twitter and Twitter and All LinkedIn and LinkedIn <laughs> anywhere just check us anywhere. out anywhere yeah find us um, and we will see you in two weeks cool bye bye